We are uh, continuing in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 8. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn with me, Luke chapter 8 will be in verses 40 through 56. Not a uh, traditional Advent passage, but then again, when have you known me to do anything traditional around here? So uh, if uh, you will... uh, If you are able, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Luke chapter 8. Now when uh, Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter of about twelve was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people, She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she'll be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful Lord, on this uh, joyous Sunday, we know that your Holy Spirit is present here, that he is at work in our hearts, in our minds, in our midst. And so, Lord, we pray, even as he is here, that you will do your work in our hearts and in your community here at Parkway. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, traditionally the theme for the third Sunday of Advent is joy. Yet my message won't be about joy. So much as it is trusting our Savior. See, deep and true joy comes solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the person and work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in and among us. And so deeper trust in Jesus, the birth of whom we are celebrating this Advent season, is the source and conduit of that joy. The more we trust him, the more joy we receive, because he is the the source, and trusting him is is the conduit. See, we in America used to be a trusting people. We used to uh, trust our government, mostly. We used to trust the press, mostly. We uh, used to trust our police and our military, mostly. But now we've so compartmentalized ourselves that we only trust within certain groups. 
It's become hard to trust any longer. It has. In our digital online world, we're constantly bombarded by stories and opinions, some true, some false, that makes us trust less and less. Who or what is there to trust? It's very hard to discern where we should place our trust. Years ago, uh, Monroe Monroe Parker was traveling through uh, South Alabama on one of those hot Alabama days. He he stopped at a watermelon stand and picked out a watermelon and asked the, the proprietor how much it cost. Well, it's a dollar ten cents, he replied. Parker uh, dug into his pocket and he could only find a dollar bill. And he told him, that's all I have. That's okay, the proprietor said. I'll trust you for it. Well, that's uh, mighty nice of you, he said. Pick it, and then he picked up the watermelon and started to leave. Hey, where are you going? The man behind the counter demanded. Well, I'm going outside to eat my watermelon. But uh, you forgot to give me the dollar. But you said you would trust me for it. Yeah, but I meant I would trust you for the dime. Mac, Parker replied, you weren't going to trust me at all. You were just going to take a ten-cent gamble on my integrity. But a dollar and ten-cent gamble? Well, that's just too much. You could tell this is an older story. Watermelons cost a lot. <laughs> cost a lot more than that nowadays. You know, uh, for those of you who have been around Protestant Christianity for a while, we know that Christian faith is all about faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We know that we enter into this life in Jesus Christ through faith alone. Did my, uh, my, did my mic die? Oh, okay. Sounds different to me. Okay. Uh, we, we know that it's through Christ alone and by grace alone. We, uh, we know all that. But what does trust and faith look like when the rubber meets the road? Is it just for the first moment of entrance into the Christian life? Or is there more to it? How about here at Parkway? As you all have gone through some very difficult times in recent years, How does trust work here? How does trust work when uh, we're asked to take risks, trusting that God and His sovereignty will indeed continue to lead and work in our midst? How can we trust that? Now, uh, before we uh, jump into this event as Luke records it, let me just tell you a little personal story. Now, it's uh, been over 24 years ago when Lynn gave birth to our oldest son, Abraham. But I uh, still remember that day pretty vividly. It was uh, 8 a.m. in the morning when Lynn, who hadn't uh, slept very restfully the night before, woke up, and uh, she let me know that this was the time, that the baby was coming. One of the things I remember very vividly is after calling the doctor's office and informing them Uh, and being told that I need to get her to the hospital right away, is how bad the traffic seemed to be. It seemed to take a whole lot longer to drive those few miles than I had ever remembered before. Now, uh, looking back, I realized that uh, really the traffic wasn't any worse that day than usual. It just seemed more terrible because of my own anxiety and my own hurry. And in our uh, text this morning, that's, uh, I think, what's going through Jairus' mind here, this uh, 
synagogue leader. He must have felt very much the same as he left home and his critically ill daughter to uh, seek out Jesus and to ask him to come and place his healing hand on her. He was in a desperate state. He knew she was critically close to death. I can uh, just sense his concern growing. There was a large crowd that was pressing in on Jesus, as we're told, which would have taken time, of course, to get through that crowd. Then there was a woman who happened to slip in behind Jesus, secretly stealing a touch of his garment, which uh, instantly healed her. And even though the healing doesn't take any time, Jesus frustratingly dawdles by acknowledging her. At least I would have been frustrated. Uh, Jairus doesn't seem to indicate any trust, any uh, frustration, but I know I would have been. And so here's the first thing we learn about trust and faith in Christ. And uh, it's point one in your outline. Trust begins with an understanding that the one we trust holds all eternity in his hands and nothing, not even death, will prevent him from accomplishing all that he wills. See, Jairus is aware when he comes to Jesus that his daughter is near to death. In fact, the reality of her death is so close, close that Matthew records the event as Jairus telling Jesus that his daughter is dead when he arrives. Now, uh, before we dive into this any further, I want us to take a bigger picture, to step further back for a moment and uh, get a little deeper sense of the context here. Now, uh, Jesus had just crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And as they were crossing, there was a great storm, which Jesus has stilled with a word. When they landed outside of Israel, they were met by a raving, demon-possessed man. And Jesus casts out of him not one demon, but a whole host of demons. The demons ask not to be left unclothed, so Jesus sends them into some pigs. The pigs then uh, proceed to fall off a cliff and die. And the townspeople, they don't really see a miracle, but uh, they only see the loss of their property, loss of income. And so they ask Jesus and his disciples to leave. And as we uh, are to read this text, Luke is wanting us, uh, and he's giving us pointers through the words he's using, he wants us to ask a question. He wants us to ask ourselves if we are willing to trust this man and what will that trust look like. What is faith and trust in Jesus? You see, the disciples see Jesus perform that amazing miracle on the lake with just a word, a miracle that only God himself could perform. A miracle over nature. And they understand that it is only God who is capable of this. For they ask this, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. They stand at wonder. But uh, that's not quite trust yet. It's a step in the right direction. It's a step toward it. But it's not fully trusting yet. Jesus miraculously casts out an a legion of demons. They all see a miracle of a defeat of an entire army of Satan's demons. But the Gerasenes, the people to whom the pigs belonged, 
couldn't take their eyes off themselves, couldn't see beyond their own interests, their own pocketbooks. Faith requires denying oneself because there is no self-interest involved in trusting Jesus. So Jesus and his disciples arrive at Capernaum on the home side of the Sea of Galilee where they're met by this large crowd waiting for Jesus. There are many who are witnessing and reporting these events of Jesus' life. The crowd is excited. They're expectant. And it's at this point that Jesus arrives. He shows signs of genuine... And it's Jairus who comes. And he shows signs of genuine trust in Jesus, that Jesus can indeed heal his child. But on their way there, there's a divine delay. A woman... We're never told her name, who's suffraged from hemorrhaging for 12 years, and there's a reason she approaches Jesus from behind, unseen. Jairus comes to Jesus' face and falls at his feet, begging him to come and heal his daughter. This woman, though, never even asks a question. I hope you won't too quickly pass her by. The amazing quality of the trust of this woman She had overcome a lot of obstacles to get here. First, we need to understand that uh, there was the obstacle of her ceremonial uncleanness. The book of Leviticus clearly identifies this woman and her condition as one which made her unclean and required her to stay at home. We also learn that this has been an ongoing problem for 12 years. So, of course, she was well known in the community by that point. There is the obstacle of large crowds as well, which is pressing in on Jesus. Luke even writes, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. See, getting to Jesus will be a tricky one for anyone, especially for someone whose touch will make others religiously unclean. It was an incredible thing just to make it to Jesus through the crowd, especially for this woman. See, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' mother and brothers couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowds. But remarkably and insistently, she works her way through this crowd in her weakened and sickened condition. She finally makes it, likely having hidden her face so that people don't recognize who it is that's touching them, so that those people don't know that her touch has made them unclean which would likely have stopped her way to Jesus. She finally makes it. She touches his robe and is instantly healed. God's word in Luke indicates that she would have been perfectly happy staying anonymous. But it's Jesus who wouldn't allow that to happen. Jesus stops, and while his disciples are astonished, he asks, who touched him? Peter says, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. You know, when uh, you read those words, I can almost see Peter's eyes rolling in his head. The implication is, you know, lots of people are touching you. See, the disciples' trust in Jesus is not yet where this woman's is. It's not yet where Jairus is. They've seen more, they've learned more, they've heard more, but they don't really trust him yet. They thought it would be a large miracle to even know who touched Jesus. 
And at just that moment, and they figured Jesus just didn't know what he was doing or what he was asking. See, there were hundreds pressing in. And really, what difference does it make when the daughter of Jairus was at death's door? Come on, Jesus! Why this unnecessary delay? Jesus has uh, something more important in mind. See, he had a very good reason for all this. The first part of his reason is for the woman who was healed. See, the woman comes forward and confesses it was her. Fearfully, she comes to Jesus' face now and falls at his feet. She reveals herself and admits before the crowd why she touched him. And Jesus' reply, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And the word, of course, is equivalent to shalom. Go in wholeness. Go in peace. See, there are plenty of places in the Gospels where we're told that Jesus healed, and he healed lots of people. But Jesus wouldn't just allow this particular healing just to pass by. See, she came in secret, in desperation. Someone who is completely undeserving but desperate, and in her mind, she wasn't worthy of coming before Jesus as Jairus had. She was a humble person. She was a woman, and what more, a woman who was obviously cursed to be separated, often alone, distant from God, because, you know, she couldn't come to the temple. She couldn't come to the temple and worship God. She couldn't do that for 12 years. But Jesus destroys all those barriers. And Jesus wanted to make no mistake as to the real cause of this woman's healing. See, it would be easy to see all this as some kind of magic. The truth that Jesus proclaims is that it was her trust in Him. It was her faith in Jesus. Not some kind of magic. See, trust and faith are much more than just simply thinking the right way. It also involves acting on our beliefs, stepping out, no matter the circumstances, no matter the barriers, no matter the shame. See, Jesus' desire is that the raising of Jairus' daughter remains silent for a while. Do you see that at the end of this passage? But not for this woman who wanted to remain anonymous. She would have been perfectly happy being silent. Here Jesus forces the woman to make her healing public. See, it's not so much the nature of the miracle or the power of Jesus that he wanted people to know about, but rather, and this is point two on your outline, Jesus wanted to acknowledge this woman's faith. See, Jairus' faith was public. It was clear. But while the woman reached out to Jesus in faith, she had done it anonymously. See, there's something about faith that needs to be publicly displayed. There is a silent faith, a private faith, and that's good. But saving faith, effective faith, must also be publicly displayed. For as Paul tells us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. See, on a very important level, trusting Jesus is done publicly. It's done out loud. See, today in America, we're being sold a bill of goods that sounds something like this. 
My faith is a very personal thing. It's a private thing. You have your faith, I have mine, and it's, uh, it's personal. It has nothing to do with my public life and my public proclamation of what's true. But as Bible-believing, Holy Spirit-filled, gospel-proclaiming Christians, our faith is to be lived publicly and boldly. And that's the next point on your outline. Our faith is to be lived publicly and boldly. Yes, it's personal, but it's also public and to be proclaimed in a bold way. If not, it's not real faith. It's not the radical trust that Jesus calls from us. There's another uh, very key aspect of why Jesus calls this woman forward. See, Jesus wishes for this woman much more than just physical healing. But wholeness, in a comprehensive sense. And when she comes forward, he acknowledges her faith, her trust in him. And this is the next point. He bestows on her peace and wholeness that comes from a true and real, genuine, right relationship with God. See, the woman who could not approach God for 12 years because of her ritual uncleanness, through faith in Christ alone, she receives wholeness and peace with God. How about you? Have you experienced that touch of wholeness from Jesus? Have you known that peace and grace that's received only by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Is this not the vision that God has given us at Parkway to love others to real and genuine life in Jesus? But there's a whole lot more to this. See, a messenger now comes and tells Jairus that the child was dead. How can there be any more hope? The death of the child was the death of hope for her healing. Jesus' words, don't be afraid, just believe and she'll be healed, makes crystal clear that hope and trust in Jesus transcends not only illness, ritual uncleanness, cultural barriers, but even death. And as Jesus drew near to the house of Jairus, a funeral was already beginning to form. He leaves all but three of his disciples and the crowd outside and he enters the house. Inside was the family and closest friends who were all in mourning. But Jesus calls for them to stop, telling them she's not dead, but asleep. Mourning uh, turned to scornful laughter here. They knew that she was dead. This could only be some kind of sick joke, right? But Jesus simply takes the child by the hand and commands her to rise, which she does as her spirit returns to her. She stands and walks around. Her parents were both surprised and delighted. Now, these two miracles are interweaved together and included together in this way in all of the Gospels. Well, in the three that they're included, Luke, Matthew, and in Mark, See, they're intended to go together. They're interweaved, but they're linked with also the number 12. See, the woman suffers an illness that separates her from God and others for 12 years. And just as she's starting to discover this ailment, Jairus' daughter is born and will die and be resurrected by Jesus on the same day that the woman is sozo, healed, but also saved. The Greek word means both. The number 12 isn't included by just mere happenstance. 
It's a vital and important symbolic number that all of Luke's readers would recognize. It indicates God's people. First the Israelites and the twelve tribes, and now the new covenant people, symbolized by the twelve disciples. The church. See, these miracles are important illustrations of the way God is dealing with His people. As Paul put it, all have sinned and are dead, and all are ritually unclean and separated from God and from others, and even within our own selves. See, this woman had faith that Jesus could heal her, save her, when all human hope was gone. When she could have resented God and His people, she instead trusts Jesus so thoroughly that she was willing to face complete shame and total ostracization. Even more than that, she'd, even more than she'd already received. So when all hope was gone, she still trusted Jesus. See, trust is not the result of human hope. Let me uh, make sure you hear this because it's also the next point on your outline. Faith is not the result of human hope, but it is the proper response to Jesus when all earthly hope is gone. When we realize there's nowhere else to turn but Jesus. See, the same can be said for Jairus. When faced with death, there's no earthly hope. There's no worldly philosophy, no scientific path that gives us hope in the face of death, no business model solution, no new human invention. Only Jesus conquers death. Only Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The mourners laughed in unbelief because they knew there was no worldly hope in the face of death. Let me make sure you hear this. This is the opposite of the prosperity gospel or the heresies of the positive mental attitude or power of positive thinking. All of it is more worldly, mere worldly human optimism based upon human possibilities, but not on the personhood of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Real trust and faith is radical because it faces reality, realizing that there is no hope without Jesus and His Word. The prosperity gospel and positive thinking is hype, not hope. See, often the biggest barrier to real trust is also prosperity. It just happens to be. Remember Jesus' words, blessed are the poor because they are helpless and hopeless and they have nowhere else to turn. Neither this woman nor Jairus had anywhere else to turn. But this isn't uh, merely for just the emergencies of life, but it's for daily life. In our desperation, when we find the real thing, when we find real life in Jesus, we also discover that it's for every day. It's for the routine as well as the impossible. We realize we cannot live one iota of the Sermon on the Mount without trusting in the empowering presence of Jesus Christ. Radical, revolutionary trust for all times for emergencies and desperate times, only serve to point to the reality. Tim Hansel, uh, writing about this kind of trust, wrote this. One day while my son Zach and I were out in the country, climbing around in some cliffs, I heard a voice from above me yell, 
Hey, Dad, catch me! I turned around to see Zach joyfully jumping off a rock straight at me. He jumped and then yelled, Hey, Dad. I became an instant circus act, catching him. We both fell to the ground, and for a moment, after I caught him, I could hardly talk. When I found my voice again, I gasped in exasperation. Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? He responded with remarkable calmness, Sure, because you're my dad. His whole assurance was based in the fact that his father was trustworthy. He could live life to the hilt because I could be trusted. So isn't this even more true for us as Christians? See, Christians are called to revolutionary trust. A trust in Jesus that creates hope. A trust in Jesus that has lived boldly in public, not secretly in private. Real revolutionary trust in Jesus gives great joy. People filled with real hope. In, uh, in Burma, missionary Adonijah Judson was uh, lying in a foul jail with 32 pounds of chains on his ankles, his feet bound to a bamboo pole. A uh, fellow prisoner said, Dr. Judson, what about the prospect of the conversion of the heathen now? See, he was incredulous that Christ could work to build his church and his kingdom now. He mocked Dr. Judson, but Dr. Judson replied immediately, the prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. See, Dr. Judson's trust in Jesus wasn't dependent on the circumstances around him, wasn't dependent on worldly hope. See, heavenly hope is imbued in us because we radically trust in Jesus. This isn't a common, ordinary, add a nice religious event or theme to my life, but a radical, transformative relationship that is built solidly on trust in Jesus Christ. And this is for all the church. This is the faith that's required of each and every one of us. Not just for a few leaders or a few gifted folk, but each one of us is called to live with this revolutionary trust in Jesus Christ. Do you trust Him? Do you truly just trust Jesus today? Do you truly trust Him with all your life? Do you trust Him with your finances? Do you trust Him with your family? Do you trust Him with your calling, your work, your health? You trust Him with your church. Alicia Hill wrote about transformative revolutionary trust. One day, a beautiful but very troubled little girl came through the door of my day nursery. From the very beginning, I became captivated by this child who had, who had so little and needed so much. I was heartbroken that a four-year-old could suffer such a heartache and pain she was born in prison after her mom had used marijuana, crack, and cocaine her entire pregnancy. The little girl was nonverbal, and she had very little control. I knew her progress would be a mighty battle. Whenever somebody approached her, she became violent for long periods and ended up in a fetal position on the floor crying out. 
I, find my, I found myself praying for her day in and day out. And as months rolled on, I began to bond with this child that no one wanted. She and I worked very hard, taking one step forward and four steps back. Daily, we sat in the big rocking chair in my office, swaying back and forth and back and forth. During our rocking time, I sang, Jesus Loves Me. She always settled down and became very still at the melody. Though she never spoke, peace seemed to fill her face as she listened to the song. One day, after a very long battle, I held my special girl to again calm her fears and pain. In silence, we rocked back and forth and back and forth. Then she looked at me with tear-filled eyes and spoke for the first time, Sing to me about the man who loves me. Blinking back tears of joy, I knew the battle had been won. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the living God. And because you live, we can trust you with all that we have, all that we are, all that we can become. We give it over to you as individuals, as, as a community, as a church, as families. Lord, we trust you and we desire to trust you even more. Lord, lead us where we need to go that we might trust you each step of the way. Thank you, Lord, for your presence among us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is at work in our midst. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.